Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. We bring you news and analysis every day on our UK politics podcast. But now you can hear the latest news on demand whenever you want it. Subscribe to Bloomberg News Now to get the latest headlines at the click of a button. You can listen and subscribe to Bloomberg News Now on the Bloomberg Business app, Bloomberg.com plus Apple, Spotify and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Search Bloomberg News Now and subscribe today. Labour has never done well in a UK election without doing really well in Scotland. We need deposit ATMs and we need withdrawal ATMs and we need a law that means that businesses have to accept cash. UK workers have had the most bargaining power essentially since the 1970s because the jobs market is so tight. Can Britain actually afford to maintain a global military presence? You're listening to Bloomberg UK Politics. I'm Ewan Potts. And I'm Stephen Carroll. Welcome to the programme. We were hoping to try and find some positive news somewhere to bring you since it's Friday. Would you but like to? I went looking in Marrakesh and I couldn't find any, Ewan. <laughs> it didn't work. Well, the Chancellor Jeremy Hunt is in Marrakesh. You may ask why he's at the IMF and World Bank meetings. And asked by reporters about whether there will be any uh, tax cuts in his economic statement next month. Well, it looks like he's ruled them out. You can never guarantee there won't be a surprise. No, but regular listeners would be familiar with our consistent drumbeat of gloom over how bad the fiscal position has been in the UK. And we did talk about it at the time when the there was this revision of how much the government had spent and this mystical fiscal headroom had disappeared, that there was actually essentially no money, as Liam Byrne famously wrote in his goodbye note when he left the, the Treasury, there's no money to be had. And even when we spoke to Liam Byrne a couple of weeks ago, actually, he was saying the situation now is in fact much worse than it was when uh, they left Labour left government still no money still, yeah, still, yeah. still no money years on evergreen tweet <laughs> um, I, but I mean it is worth pointing out as well uh, that we are in politics you know everything can change death and taxes are our constants in our lives uh, and whether those taxes come down I suppose is the matter of negotiation lots could change perhaps not before this autumn statement but perhaps before the next election yes well that would be, that would be strange wouldn't it if uh, in the spring suddenly a little bit of money is found down the back of the sofa just in time for the election, but that would be very cynical of us to indeed suggest that. Uh, if, although, if you are looking for some more positive news, it does look like we could be getting close to a deal with the European Union to delay import tariffs on electric vehicles. Now, you might remember this is one of those issues that had been looming, one of the many rolling deadlines in the post-Brexit world uh, of the EU and UK's relationship. New tariffs due to come in from January. European car makers had been warning that this is going to be come at a huge cost to the sector, over €4 billion, Euros, they were saying. It's something that would have hurt both the UK and the EU businesses operating in the car making space. So the chances of a deal being done that'll push back these tariffs coming in by a bit of breathing space good news for those businesses, especially good news for consumers because the cost of electric cars wouldn't be going up and then good news from the idea of moving to less polluting vehicles. There you are, Stephen. That was all good news. You said we weren't going to have any good news. Well, I did my best. Who was it who said that there's nothing certain in life but death and taxes and Brexit negotiations? No, oh, I said it a minute ago. <laughs> <laughs> the Brexit negotiations is new, though. I'll give you that. Right, let's move on. 
bad for Britain. That's what the president of Microsoft, Brad Smith, said back in April when the company's $69 billion takeover of the video games maker Activision was blocked by the competition regulator. Fast forward six months and that same regulator, the Competition and Markets Authority, today approved the deal. So what changed? Well, was it Brad Smith's pronouncement uh, that uh, the European Union is a more attractive place to start a business than the United Kingdom? Ouch. No, says the head of the CMA, Sarah Cardo. We spoke to her earlier and she told us that they based their decision on the changes that Microsoft made to its takeover plan. So we've been clear throughout this process that the merger between Microsoft and Activision couldn't proceed if there were any competition concerns. And we blocked the original deal because we were really concerned about the combination of Microsoft's very strong position across cloud, Xbox and Windows, combining that with Activision's leading position as a games content provider. And we gave a clear message to Microsoft that the deal couldn't proceed on that basis. Now, they came back with a major concession, a fundamental restructure of the deal, which sees Activision selling the cloud streaming rights in relation to all of its content, not just now, uh, but any content created over the next 15 years and putting those cloud streaming rights in the hands of an independent competitor, Ubisoft. Now, that concession is a, is a real game changer because it breaks the stranglehold that Microsoft would otherwise have had over this really important emerging cloud gaming sector. It means that that sector is open to competition, innovation, choice, and, and critically, it means that UK gamers will be protected, will get the benefit of competitive prices and better services. So it's on that basis that today we're clearing that newly restructured deal. You do say in the statement that you have limited residual concerns with the new deal. What are they? So what we announced a couple of weeks back was that the deal resolved uh, the substance, that the major part of our concerns, but we wanted to make sure that the terms of the arrangement with Ubisoft were absolutely watertight. We consulted on that basis a couple of weeks ago, and we have today confirmed that we are satisfied with those terms. We have got commitments effectively from Microsoft uh, that enable us to ensure those terms are watertight, and if we need to, that we can enforce against them directly. So on that basis, the deal is now cleared to proceed. How challenging is it to regulate nascent technologies? Because a lot of this deal was about not what's happening at the moment, but what's happening in the future. That must be difficult for a regulator. Well, I think it's important uh, rather than difficult, I would say. So it's absolutely critical that we make sure where we see these nascent markets, that competition is protected and that these markets can develop in ways that are open, that innovation can come in through a whole host of different players in this market. And that was our real concern here, because we could see that with the original deal, Microsoft would have this stranglehold over the market and would really be able to skew the way that the market was developing. So, for example, would be able to retain that content and make sure, for example, that it wasn't available for cloud-based subscription services going forward. So that was our concern with the original deal. And as I say, it forced Microsoft to make a major concession to ensure that that market remains open, that Ubisoft now, uh, as an independent player, has that content, which it can provide to a whole host of different cloud gaming providers, and that will keep that market open. So it's important to have that forward-looking focus always in these digital markets. Um, I noticed that you did say in the statement that you take your decisions free from political influence and won't be swayed by corporate lobbying. Microsoft's Brad Smith was extremely critical when you first blocked this deal back in April, essentially saying that it cast the UK as a bad place to do business. Why did you feel that it was necessary to make it clear that you were making this decision free of lobbying? 
So we have taken our decisions in this case, as we always do, free from any influence of, of lobbying uh, and based simply and objectively on the evidence before us. But there has been a lot of discussion of those comments. And I think it's really important to be clear that any kind of lobbying activity, any kind of commentary like that is not going to influence the decisions that we take. Our decisions will be grounded in the evidence and where we see competition concerns, we will stand firm unless those concerns can be resolved. That sends an important message, I think, not just in this case, uh, but in future cases more generally. How do you walk the tightrope between holding big tech firms accountable while also ensuring that Britons consider the tech-friendly market? So I think key to making sure that Britain is a tech-friendly market is to have good, open and competitive markets, which enables competition to flourish both for, for big established players, but also for many of the smaller and growing players, many of whom, of course, are UK businesses or other businesses seeking to invest in the UK. So we will stand firm in ensuring that those markets are competitive, but we will also engage constructively in discussions where our companies seek to resolve our concerns. And that is what eventually happened with Microsoft. I should say that Microsoft tactics in delaying those discussions were not effective and it would have been far better for Microsoft to come forward earlier in the process. And that, I think, is critical as we go forward uh, with further engagement across these tech markets. Do you expect your decision to give rise to other regulators to perhaps rethink their position on this? Have you been involved in any international coordination in other parts of the world? So it's obviously for each agency to consider how to assess the deal based on our own laws. I think the EU has put out a statement today indicating that they will not be reconsidering this deal. But our focus is on the UK and making sure that our decisions protect UK businesses and UK consumers. Is the UK still big enough to regulate tech giants? Could you really have blocked this massive deal? We absolutely did block this deal when it was originally put forward and we would have defended that decision to block the deal in litigation. I think the fact that Microsoft came forward with a major concession shows the effectiveness of our position. And we are, in reality, the only agency globally that has been able to deliver this market outcome, which really protects competition in this cloud gaming market going forward. Well, Bloomberg's legal reporter, Catherine Gemmel, has been following the story and joins us with more analysis. Catherine, the CMA there defending the UK's response into this mega deal, but how was the regulator's response viewed elsewhere amongst investors and, and if I can call it, the regulatory community, if there's such a thing? Hi, yeah, thanks for having me on today. So I think it was quite clear among the community and, you know, other tech companies that this was seen as a sort of U-turn, so to say. I mean, six months ago, we got a clear block um, in April. And now six months later, um, it has been given the green light um, with um, a new cloud rights um, part of that. Um, However, obviously, the CMA don't see that as a U-turn. They themselves see it as a bit of a win for the regulator because, in their view, they're the only regulator, global regulator, that was able to secure um, this sort of concession from the deal, I mean, from the FT. Um, point of view, they pro- sort of failed. They're still uh, pursuing their in-court um, uh, um, lawsuit um, against the deal, but that won't stop it closing. So, you know, in their view, globally, they're the only regulator that sort of got something out of this. And 
is that a, a kind of a fair assessment of, of the weight of the CMA in this globally? Because the, the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission in the United States, you referenced there, I mean, obviously, because these are, I mean, American companies and thus there is that much of a bigger weight that they have when it comes to regulating big tech, certainly in the case of Microsoft. So is the CMA, has it had an outsized influence in how this deal has ended up? I mean, it's a good question. I mean, when you look at it, it's obviously a lot harder for the FTC to sort of stop these deals because they have to go through the courts, whereas in the UK, the regulators have the powers to make these decisions on themselves. Um, I would say that, you know, there's a massive market in the UK for gaming. So the UK has the right to look at these deals, um, especially when they're going to impact so many UK consumers. Although, of course, we will see the companies, um, different companies saying that, you know, the UK, the fact the UK can sort of weigh in on a deal with two American companies, that does make it have this outsized interest. But I think it is just a real differing in opinion there. Sarah Cardell told us there that she was critical of Microsoft for not engaging in the process sooner. Do you you think there's, there's some truth in that? I mean, I think... Obviously, Microsoft were just pursuing their own interests. They were trying to get the deal through in the way that they wanted it to go through. Um, Of course, they could have offered these concessions much sooner in the process, and they didn't. Um, And that's up to them. I think, you know, from both sides, there was perhaps mistakes made. Um, But it seems now that both sides are happy. So perhaps, you know, the CMA has had a win there. Catherine, are there other deals that the CMA is currently mulling over that we should be waiting for decisions on? Because I I wonder if this process of going back and allowing Microsoft essentially a second go at getting the deal through could have an influence in other deals as well. Mm, That's a great question. I mean, I think this Microsoft situation was definitely unique um, and I'm not sure we're going to see something like this again anytime soon. Um, The one big deal that the CMA um, will have coming up is the Adobe Figma deal. Um, The provisional findings on that are due at the end of October and provisional findings for the CMA is where they take an initial view on where their final one is going to go and usually that provisional uh, view doesn't differ much from the final one so it gives us a good indication of where their thinking is. Um, and, you know, but I think this Microsoft situation will definitely have an impact on other merger and um, uh, other merger cases. For instance, Dylan Field, who is the CEO of Figma, was recently in the UK press criticising the CME. So, you know, he was sort of doing a Microsoft, getting out there, criticising them for their views. Um, on the deal so far. Um, So this is what we might see now going forward, whereas these tech companies, you know, will use press to their advantage to um, try to get their message out there. Catherine, I think in your outsized influence in the regulatory world, you should definitely start coining doing a Microsoft and seeing if it takes off um, when it comes to future merger cases as well. Bloomberg's legal reporter, Catherine Gemmell, thanks so much for joining us uh, with the details of that as well. Um, really interesting to think about this in the context as well as the UK is trying to place itself on a global scale. Think about the upcoming AI summit as well. This is going to be something that's going to be playing as part of the backdrop to that. The UK wants to play a role in being a global regulator for AI. So I wonder if some of those tech companies that are coming to take part in that summit will perhaps be looking at this decision and and trying to fit it into what they see as the UK's place in a regulatory world. Interesting to see the news that um, US Vice President Kamala Harris is going to come to speak at that gathering. Yeah, very tricky balance for regulators, I think, because obviously Britain has always been had an outsized influence in the tech sector, and particularly in the gaming world. We've had a, a long history of producing a lot of games in this country. So regulating them 
pretty difficult, particularly when we're trying to find a, a new uh, place in the world uh, post-Brexit. Yeah, so a massive deal uh, finally gone through today. Let's get back to tax. Another one of our ah. favourite subjects. Um, as as we reminded you early on in the show, uh, no tax cuts on the way in the autumn statements. That's what Jeremy Hunt's been telling journalists at the IMF and World Bank meetings in Marrakesh. At the same time, the UK is facing its biggest tax burden ever. If you've ever had to fill in a tax return, you'll only be too aware that the system can be complex and be ridden with stealth levies. Well, the director of the Institute for Fiscal Studies, Paul Johnson, says that sorting this out and a myriad of other problems is going to require a lot of work. He spoke to Merrin, Somerset, Webb and John Stepek and explained how he sees the inner workings of the UK's tax system. We're spending more than ever. We are taxing more than ever. And actually, this parliament has seen the biggest increase in tax of any parliament ever uh, outside of wars anyway, which is a pretty extraordinary statement. Um, the, The tax burden actually is a fraction of national income pretty stable, about 33 34% of national income for decades. And it's suddenly bashed up to about 37%. That's about a hundred billion pound tax rise. Um, now, lots of reasons for that. I mean, we kept taxes down by essentially abolishing the defense budget over a decade, decades. We've had a decade of austerity in public services and uh, all of that's stopped. There's no more defense to go. In fact, defense spending is going up. Austerity has almost certainly run its course, and indeed over this parliament, spending has risen quite significantly. Very big spending on debt interest at the moment, uh, and of course, serious demographic change. Lots more spending on health, and over the next few years, we have lots more spending on pensions, social care, and so on. So my guess is that whilst this is the first time in my life that we've had taxes anywhere near this high, I don't think we're ever going to get down, certainly in the rest of my life, to taxes where they have been for the last 70 years. Yeah, but it's not always a government choice, is it? I mean, we've seen in the past, we've seen taxes as a percent of GDP, the burden as a percent of GDP creep up over 35%. But it always comes down again pretty quickly. There seems to be a level at which the Brits won't pay anymore. And if you look at the rates that other countries pay, you can see that in some Scandinavian countries, it tends to be higher and it can stay higher. And perhaps in the US, it's lower and it can stay lower. But each country seems to have an amount that they're prepared to pay beyond which they will not go. And for us, it looks like it's about 35%. Well, that was certainly, I used to work in the Treasury and that was absolutely the kind of house view in the Treasury. It's certainly at the sort of most senior levels, that there there was a limit to what was feasible. Now, we're testing that limit. um, And at the moment, we're going through, if you count it as a single tax rise, the single biggest tax rise ever, which is the holding of the income tax personal allowance and thresholds at the same level in cash terms for six years. That's the policy. That is a £50 billion tax rise in one go. Much the biggest tax rise in history, if you count that as a single one. And I think that's a, that, that will be the test. Is that something which drags hugely more uh, people into um, higher rate tax? So I think something like one in six uh, adults will be paying higher rate tax by the end of that period, compared with something like one in 20 not very long ago. So that's a, that's a huge change. And I think that is where we'll test your proposition that actually this isn't sustainable. But uh, my guess is that one way or another, we will keep at this kind of level of taxation because it's so hard to see you know, what is the government going to slash? Is it going to cut health spending, pension spending, welfare spending, education spending? We've done so much to get 
defence spending down. We've had a decade of austerity. We've got this demographic change. I think we might not like it, but I rather feel we're going to have to lump it in terms of the tax burden. Yeah, let's just stick with this uh, fiscal drag for a moment. I mean, in fact, it's an even bigger tax rise than the government might have thought initially because inflation is so much higher much than they expected initially. So that means that even more people are going to be pulled into these higher rates than the government might have expected when they first introduced this policy, right? And one of the things that John and I talk about a lot is the extent to which the 40% tax rate affects so many more people than anyone really thinks about. So when, when the Treasury look at it and they go, well, it's one in four, it's one in five, it's one in six. But in fact, over a lifetime, over a career, of course, it's a much larger percentage of the population. And then if you take into account the partners of people who pay 40%, the children of people who pay 40%, etc., that higher rate affects a really large part of the taxpaying population. It really does. I mean, you're right. Over, over a lifetime, I mean, people's um, salaries, uh, incomes tend to peak in their 40s, say. So lots of people in their 20s at the moment not paying higher rate who will do. Lots of people in their 60s who aren't, who have done. Uh, so as a fraction of the population, it does get quite big. Uh, and we're not just looking at the 40% rate, of course. So there's there's the 60% rate for people earning between 100 and 125,000. Right, explain then, that quickly. Not everyone will understand how you get to 60%. Just, there is a 60% rate of income tax on incomes between 100 and 125,000 pounds. Now, that is described as withdrawing the personal allowance. It is actually just a 60% marginal rate. And then, of course, there's a 45% marginal rate on incomes above that. We're now in a world, actually, where there are as many people paying 60 or 45% as 30 years ago, there were people paying 40%. So the new higher rate, actually, is that sort of 60 and 45 level. And the 40 is becoming close to a second basic rate. And in fact, of course, for a lot of people, it's way higher because once you've added on national insurance and you've added on student debt, which we think of as a tax, I know other people don't, but we think of it as a tax. Once you've added that on, some of the marginal rates of tax people are paying are insane. Well, you've got not only that, but you've got even more insane things. So if you're married and you tip over to the 40% rate, you lose your married couple's allowance. So you've got a tax rate of hundreds of percent. And if you're actually, if you've got kids um, and you move over that 100,000 point, you lose all your childcare support. So actually, you, you, can, act, you, you can be earning 99,000 and you need a 35,000 pound increase in your pay to make it worthwhile. Anything less than that and you're worse off than you were on 99,000. Now, you know, that's a small fraction of the population, but that is an absurd situation. I mean, the, the obvious question here, Paul, on that front is, why does nobody fix it? Because it's clearly mad. Um, it's, I mean, I realise that when you start pulling these threads, other things start to unravel. But is, is there not a, a better system that we could move? I mean, the system did not used to be this complicated. Uh, th th there's so much you could do to make the system better. I mean, I think in terms of what we're talking about, I think the, the, the reason it's not changed is because governments frankly, get away with it. I mean, it is quite a big revenue raiser having a 40p rate at 50,000. Very few people, I think, understand this point at the £100,000 uh, change. And even if they did, I think electorally, um, I mean, we, saw, we, we saw how incredibly um, uh, unpopular the uh, proposition a year ago was to get rid of the 45p rate. Now, um, in, in terms of that mini budget, that was by far the smallest of the tax cuts, would have cost very little compared with everything else. But even within the Conservative Party, it appeared to be incredibly unpopular. So I think actually kind of getting marginal rates down for higher earners doesn't appear to, uh, as far as one can tell, have a great deal of popular demand behind it. I suppose, and then the other thing that 
comes from, you know, what you're talking about overall is that, okay, so let's assume we're going to need higher taxes for a prolonged period of time. What's the politics of that? Because one of the big problems is that I think, and I don't know if this is a fair representation of the audience or not, but I would say that people probably feel as if they are getting charged a lot of tax, but at the same time, the public services aren't getting better. A lot of them are getting worse and there's no prospect of them getting better because all of the money is either going towards people getting old or towards, it's just, it's kind of paying for more of the same. And or, increasingly it's going towards paying higher interest rates on government yes, debt. Yes, well, the government up debt. Up. So yeah. I guess the picture you're painting is you're going to be paying more and you're not going to be getting better public services. You may get worse ones. It is a horrible. I mean, it's horrible. <laughs> I mean, it really is horrible. I mean, we are in this position where, um, if you look at the last budget red book, um, you've got tax at a record level, as we've discussed. Um, you've got debt at a very high level, over 90% of national income and st stuck there, not going down. Um, and yet the budget red book has penciled in what will effectively be cuts in public service spending through the for, uh, for, for many public services through the next parliament and it, it, it's extraordinary uh, and this and is and a the, function of our aging population this is a function of very high spending on um, debt interest poor growth and lots of spending on things like health particularly um and pensions so so yeah pe people are going to get pretty fed up i think and see, see tax rec taxes at record levels and this very very tight spending situation that was the Institute for Fiscal Studies director, Paul Johnson, speaking to Merrin Somerset Webb and John Stepek on the Merrin Talks Money podcast. You can hear that full interview available for download now uh, on Merrin Talks Money, another part of the Bloomberg podcast family. Yeah, it is an excellent podcast. Very good. Worth listening to. Uh, just before we go, there is another annual conference. Kick oh, it off another one. Go on. In Aberdeen. It is the SNP, uh, the party, perhaps in less upbeat mood than in many previous years. Uh, of course, that uh, big by-election defeat to Labour, that 20% swing uh, they were hit with just a couple of weeks ago. And yesterday, the defection, uh, was a surprise to me, defection of one of their MPs to the Conservatives, which is not a useful thing to be going into uh, a conference with. Yes, we'll have more on that on the programme on Monday. But that is it from us for today. If you like the programme, don't forget to subscribe and give it five stars so other people can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen. This episode was produced by Chris Pitt and our audio engineers were Max Green and Mariful Hussain. I'm Ewan Potts. And I'm Stephen Carroll. We'll be back with more on Monday. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg UK Politics. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.